All right, guys. Uh, happy to see you here. Uh, I think we can get started. Uh, I hope you're enjoying the reInvent. There's lots of learning opportunities. Hope you followed the keynote by Dr. Werner. Uh, but don't forget that we have a party tonight, so hopefully you'll have fun. Um, so my name is Vadim Dobrovolsky, and I'm with AWS. I'm a customer solutions manager. I'll be joined today uh, by Alan Presswich, who is a developer at Verizon. And both Alan and I are excited to talk today on how to break down a monolithic application based on a commercial software and move it to open source and cloud. And I'll start by sharing with you some uh, ways how we at AWS facilitate your move to the open source and to the cloud, and then hand it over to Alan, who will dive deeper into Verizon's specific use case and share some of the technical challenges they faced on the way to open source, and then share with you some solutions. And then in the end of this session, we'll hang out for about 10, 15 minutes. If you have any questions, feel free to stop by. We'll be happy to answer your questions. Now, let's talk about uh, some typical stage we see on the adoption of the uh, open source at our customers. First of all, many customers, especially in enterprise, they're still running a lot of proprietary software on their on-prem infrastructure. And there are a few challenges with this. First of all, and the most obvious one, it's expensive. You're paying a lot of money for the licenses. Also, proprietary software comes with a punitive li uh, licensing terms and have a high vendor lock-in. And as recent examples show, uh, the vendors may choose to change the licensing terms overnight, and they will force you to comply with it. There's no way around this. Now, another issue with this is that many customers who have the on-prem infrastructure, it takes on average to provision a single server 10 to 12 weeks. Sometimes it's even more. And of course, it slows down the uh, speed of application development. It also uh, slows down the pace of innovation, because if you want to experiment, try something new, uh, it's, it's really hard. And the cost of failure is quite high, so people are reluctant to experiment. Now, with the advent of open source, we see more and more customers choosing to move to the open source. And they save a lot of money on a license it's cost. We also at AWS see that, um, um, sorry, uh, at AWS we see that uh, uh, customers use uh, uh, open source as a way to innovate because um, you may agree that a lot of innovation, especially in areas such as machine learning, big data, analytics are happening in the open source. Now, some customers may choose to migrate the proprietary workloads to the cloud without changing them, because they may still have some license left, or they want to get benefits of the cloud quicker, so they just lift and shift their workloads. In AWS, we support these customers. Uh, so for instance, in 2009, we introduced the Amazon RDS, a managed relationship database service, which allows you to use both open source database engines as well as a commercial one, Oracle and Microsoft SQL Server. Now, more and more customers are asking us, AWS, hey guys, can you run open source for us? And the reason for this is simple, because first of all, it's the most cost-effective solution. They're paying only for the uh, resources they consume, such as storage, compute, or network. It also gives them a greater flexibility 
to choose a right tool for the job. You are not forced to um, use the same commercial software for all your use cases. You can pick the right open source project or framework for your specific use case. And of course, it avoids uh, vendor lock-in. Now, in AWS, we listen to our customers and we build based on what you guys are asking us to do, to build. And that's why you see more and more services uh, in AWS based on the open source. Uh, the very recent announcement, I didn't have a chance to include this on this slide, is Managed Cassandra. And Jason announced this service on Tuesday during his keynote. Another good example is Kubernetes. Those of you who have experience creating and managing Kubernetes clusters, you guys may know that uh, while this platform has a lot of flexibility and a lot of capabilities, it's really hard to maintain. It's complex software and it's costly. Uh, to, to maintain. And that's why many customers asked us in AWS to give them the Kubernetes managed experience. So in 2018, we introduced the Elastic Container Service for Kubernetes, or EKS in short. And this service uh, is very popular among our customers. Now, in AWS, we're not only using open source, but we're giving back to the community. So you see a couple of top tier projects where we actively contribute. In many cases, such as Hadoop ecosystem, we contributed to the community for many years. Because when we in AWS decide that we want to create a service based on an open source project, it's a long-term commitment. And you see that we are contributing in, uh, back in form of bug fixes, uh, security, performance, flexibility, and feature enhancement. Now, we're also providing our customers with a tool to move to open source and the cloud. And Alan will talk in great details about some of these features and services in a second. Uh, I'll, I just want to give you one example. So we have this uh, Amazon Amis based on the Linux with a baked in .NET and um, one of frameworks, which allows you to take your .NET workloads and move it without changing to the cloud and uh, run it on top of uh, Linux. So you save your licensing costs for the Microsoft on a Microsoft license. Now, <clears throat> let's take a look on the Verizon specific use case, which I believe will be quite uh, relevant to many of you, especially in the enterprise world. So um, Verizon team was faced with a challenge to take down legacy uh, monolithic applications based on a proprietary software and uh, re-implement this and move it to the cloud. And there are a few things they needed to keep in mind. First of all, they want to have this flexible and scalable instead of having as a monolith. They also want to avoid the vendor lock-in. They want to leverage the open source and, of course, move it to the cloud. Now, with this, I want to hand it over to Alan. Alan, please come stage. And he will dive deeper into Verizon-specific use case. Again, uh, we'll hang out here. Oh, sorry. We'll hang out here in case of you have any questions. All right, so my name is Alan Presswich. Uh, I've been a software developer, engineer for, for 25 years, and uh, had a lot of experience with different applications and developing different applications and, and doing different things. Um, I'm from Colorado. I love Colorado. And, uh, and you can see my, my picture here of Colorado and going out in the mountains. And it's interesting when you're in Colorado and you start driving through the mountains, you'll see signs that say, watch for falling rocks. And if you're not from the mountains, 
people will go, well, what, why are you watching for falling rocks? You know, and these signs will have this picture of this boulder, you know, falling onto a car. And, uh, and so you, you wonder, well, what, what is this about? And these rocks will fall off the mountain sometime and get into the road and, and you have to go and, and they have to, crews have to move them off. And usually they're smaller rocks, you know, basketball size, softball, whatever. Uh, every once in a while though, you get some really big rocks. So in 2016, um, they had some really, really large rocks fall off the mountains. And they came down onto I-70, major thoroughfare, up to all the ski resorts and stuff, you know, really important road. And they were the size of, of minivans, so really large rocks. So they called up the crews. The crews came out and they, uh, they evaluated it. You know, the engineers figured out, okay, well, we need to break this up, uh, take it apart. We need to load it all up into trucks and to haul it off and then repair the road. And they kind of estimated the cost and figured, yeah, that's our best, best route. Now, this year, we had something a little different happen. Uh, this year, we had some really large rocks come off a mountain and near Telly Ride that came down and just destroyed the road. They just had so much momentum and were so big that they just came down and left this huge trench in the ground and destroyed the road and just planted themselves right there. Uh, one of the rocks they estimated was 8.5 million pounds, so a ginormous rock. And, uh, you know, the engineers did the same thing, right? And they came out, they're looking at it, and they're evaluating, okay, well, we can use dynamite, we could blow it up and move truckloads of rocks off, out of the way and, and figure out what they're gonna do. But they decided, you know, it's just too big. These are just too large and we can't do anything with them. So they decided to make them into a monument and make the road go around it. <laughs> so, so they say, well, okay, well, let's just be a little parking area. We'll leave these rocks out here. We'll make the road go around. We'll be good. Um, so why am I talking about these rocks? Well, it's kind of like what it is with, with applications. You know, are we going to dis disassemble the monolith? Or are we going to go around the monolith, right, and do something a little different? Um, with dissembling, you know, we can break it up into pieces and into chunks. Uh, we can start using microservices or different things in order to, to take advantage of those pieces of software. Uh, if you go around the monolith, maybe you're just going to do a total new MVC, you know, all view controller, or maybe you're going to do REST services or microservices, do something totally new. You're just going to kind of leave this, do something new, and, and slowly take the pieces away from that monolith. <clears throat> now, one of the really important parts before you start working on monolithic software and doing that change is to determine the application's future. So what is the future of that application? Is it a long-term view? Is it active development? Are you really working hard on it and trying to do more with that application? Um, if so, then maybe a little bit higher effort is okay. A little bit more expense on the front end might bring you a lot of rewards in the, in the long run on reduced costs and reduced license fees when you move it to open source. Uh, what about static long-term application? You know, you got an application, it's kind of had its life, uh, but it's still running, people are still using it, you just aren't changing it much anymore. So you might not want to put a as much effort into that. You might not want to invest as much money just because it's not going to be around quite as long. And then you have retiring applications. Okay, we've got this application. It's going to be around for a little while longer, but we really want to reduce the costs. And we want to bring down those costs in the short term by moving to open source. And that is possible. That was one of the things we did, and we'll be talking a little bit about that.
And then you come to identifying the challenges. Um, you can really get some challenges when you're moving to open source and when you're doing breaking up large monolithic applications. Uh, compatibility issues. You know, let's say we want, we're running ASP.next and we want to put that on Linux. Well, we can go to Mono. Um, you know, database differences, going from Oracle to MySQL or SQL Server to MySQL or to Mara, whatever you're looking at, those are going to be uh, big steps. And there's going to be a lot of differences between those databases. So you got to kind of evaluate those and, and see what's going on. Um, proprietary software X does not equal open source Y. So if you're looking at, say, um, you know, like I was saying, .NET to Mono, if it runs in .NET, doesn't necessarily mean everything's going to work in Mono. There's a few things that don't work. Um, maybe have Red Hat to CentOS. Those are the same thing, right? Kind of. There, there might be some differences there that you need to address. Uh, same thing like going from JBoss to Wildfly. There might be some differences there that you need to take care of. Uh, some applications are so tightly coupled that you really can't separate them very easily. Uh, they're just so integrated that you can't just break off a module or just shut off a module in order to be able to go to somewhere else. So you have to look at that. Um, unsupported platforms, do you have some really old code? You know, some Java 2 stuff? Do you have something really old that you need to move onto open source, but it's not supported anymore? You're gonna need to look at that and be able to see, hey, can I upgrade at the same time or do I wanna do an upgrade first and then move? Uh, one of my favorites that I ran into several times is the experts have moved on. Does anybody have that issue? Okay, all your experts have moved on, and now you've got an issue where nobody knows the code. You know, people don't really know the database, but you've got to figure it out, and they've asked you to move it off and to work on it. And that's always a challenge. Um, unstructured code from years of modifications. Uh, I've seen this several times on applications I've worked on. Uh, you got a really large application that over time, you know, at the beginning it's great, right? It's designed just the way you want it, and then somebody asks for something else, and then another thing is asked for, and then something weird is asked for that you've never even thought of, let alone, you know, tried to develop. And so it starts getting kind of unwieldy and strange, and, uh, and all those modifications over the years make it a little bit more difficult to understand the, the structure of it. And then you always have unknowns. And I break those unknowns into two categories. Um, unknown unknowns and known unknowns. <laughs> and that sounds kind of weird, right? So you have known unknowns. So these, these are things that you know, you know, and, and that you know you need to do. You just don't really know how to do it. You know, I need to get from SQL Server to MySQL, and I don't really know how to do that. Um, then you have unknown unknowns. Those are the surprises. Those are the ones where you're working on it, you actively do it, you move it over, and it doesn't work. And you're like, oh, no. <laughs> and you have to figure out what is going on and what needs to be done. So let's talk a little bit about our experience and, and the applications I moved over and what we did. Um, the first one is Rise and Change Online Product, or VCOP. So we'll talk about that a little bit. That one is going to be decommissioned. You know? So it's an application that's going to be decommissioned. We needed it to keep around for reporting purposes, for history purposes, and, and other legal reasons. And so we had to have it for a few years, but we don't want to invest much money into it. So we want to keep as much as possible, get it off of all of the license servers and everything, 
and get really reduce the cost. You just keep it sitting over there and, and ready to go. Um, the other one is availability metrics and reporting application, or AMARA. Uh, we want to re-engineer the view on this one, but want to kind of keep the enterprise metrics and reporting uh, aspect there. So it does all the reporting, you know, so it's another reporting application, but we want to be able to have people connect to it. We need to totally redo the front end, so we're just going to go around this one, right? So some of our goals that we had. Um, first was our old to new database. So we want to take our old proprietary database that was running on our own on-prem servers and move that to over to Amazon RDS. And we wanted to go with MySQL in our case. And that was a, for several reasons we desired to do that. Uh, for compute, you know, so here we have VCOP. Currently it was running on 19 on-prem licensed servers MR on 15 licensed servers. So we had 34 on-premise servers running these two applications. And we wanted to change that to down to four Amazon EC2 instances to run the applications. Um, that was a pretty huge change, very large difference. Uh, for VCOP, not gonna be that big of a deal. Uh, you know, it's being retired, so the it's, usage is gonna get less and less until it's kind of dead. Uh, Amara, on the other hand, is growing application and continues to grow. So we kind of wanted to set up auto-scaling just in case we need it and, uh, and move on there. The application. So VCOP, don't want to do anything, work on it, right? Want to do as little as possible. We want to just take that chunk of the reporting that we can, cut it out, and move it over to, to .NET, or not .NET, sorry, over to AWS, and leave the .NET and C Sharp running. Um, Amara, on the other hand, we're redoing. This is always makes it easier, right? Um, we just set up a new environment. We're gonna set up an environment with Apache and Wildfly as the goal, allow people to connect using REST services and we'll be ready to go. So database migration. So this is our first challenge, was the database migration. Um, <clears throat> as you're looking at database migration, there's some great tools that AWS supplies for you. And AWS Schema Conversion Tool is one I'd definitely tell you to take a look at, and that's what you're gonna to wanna to use in order to do your main conversion. And if you use AWS Workload Qualification Framework along with that, that'll kinda of give you an idea of how to plan your migration, what needs to be done ahead of time, and then you, when you do the AWS SCT, then you'll be able to really do that conversion a lot easier. Um, SCT is great. It'll convert your schemas, your views, your stored procedures, your functions, it gets all that and, and does the conversion for you. Not everything, sometimes there's a few things that you'll need to work on, but, but it does a lot. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, we also have, uh, it'll go through your code. Here, let me go to the next screen. <clears throat> so uh, another thing I would suggest you use is AWS DMS migration playbooks. So, They've gone and just created all these playbooks. And this one is huge. Uh, all of them are pretty big. You know, this is 456 page guide. But I'll walk you through everything that needs to happen and everything you need to do in order to go from like this one Microsoft SQL Server to Amazon Aura with MySQL compatibility. Now, 
As you look at these guides, this is a little chunk of one of the pages. You know, it tells you the feature compatibility. So how compatible are they from one to the other? It tells you the uh, automation level. So when SAT runs, how, how much is it going to be able to do? You know, this one's four out of five. So it's going to be able to get most of everything. And then there might be a few things that you need to work on manually. So there's a lot of information in these guides. They're just terrific. At the beginning of the guide, they give a lot of details of what you're going to go through and what you're going to need to do. So some of the schema conversion challenges we faced. So we had 155 tables. This is for VCOP and uh, 37 views. Um, the table name case, you know, we're moving from Windows to Linux. And so we really ran into a lot of problems there just because the developers, sometimes they used uppercase, sometimes they used lowercase. And for MySQL, it uses the table name as part of the file name. And so since you're on Linux, it is now case sensitive. And we, we had to go through all the code and be able to look at it and say, okay, is the case correct for the table names and, and go through all that. And that was kind of a little bit of effort. Um, we had to do the same thing with stored procedures, make sure all those were correct there. Uh, for the stored procedure challenge. Now, it, I had never seen so many stored procedures in, in an application as this one. Um, I don't know if that was just because of different applications I'd worked on, but uh, we had many with thousands of lines of code, and some of them were 10,000 lines long stored procedure, which seemed like an awfully big storage procedure to me. But uh, th that was a lot of code in there. And some of them looked like they were auto-generated, which might be why they were so large, and because you couldn't really read them very well, which made it very difficult. And we were able to reduce those, though. So we had to kind of go through and say, okay, which ones are needed? Which ones call other functions, right? You have to go through that process of figuring out what's needed and get rid of the ones that aren't needed. And then you just work on converting those ones that are needed. And that helps quite a bit. But we were able to reduce those hundreds of procedures down to 22 and uh, procedures and 50 functions. So it wasn't too bad. Um, we had, did have a lot of cleanup work we had to do. Some of them, the performance was just bad, and I don't think that was anything to do with the conversion process. It was just, you know, they were written by automation previously, and so it just wasn't the best and wasn't the fastest code. So the application migration, what did we do there? Uh, the majority of the code for VCOP wasn't being used anymore, so it wasn't too bad. We went ahead and, and were able to divide and conquer, right? We went and, and cut up as much as we could, and uh, we wanted to just keep that search page and the reporting. So we ended up only writing one new web page, and that web page was just kind of a new home page for the website with a, just a search function and for reporting function and went out and grabbed what was needed. Um, but that was enabled us to go remove all those servers and just go down to four EC2 instances. And those instances, that includes uh, dev and UAT and then a couple of production. Um, we're also able to move to Apache web server just fine. Uh, the .NET code we were using was a little bit older so it didn't have any of the new functions, so we didn't have to worry about having compatibility issues in, in mono. Um, there are a few things in mono that aren't handled, that, um, like WPF, WWF. So if you're looking at, at moving over to mono, you do have to look into those. 
But they have a great website, and it goes through and tells you everything that they can handle and what they can't handle. And if you really want, you know, you need to get permission, you can go and work on it. And you need, you need some new functionality, it's open source. Go work on it and, and get it yourself. Um, also, one of the great things for Mono and .NET, uh, Amazon now has an AMI, so pre-built AMI instance uh, with Linux 2 with .NET Core, and it includes Mono. Um, so you can just ramp that up. It's already all set up for you. It's ready to go, and you can just move your instance over there, and, and you can start playing with it and seeing what works and what doesn't work. For Amara, uh, we're able to re-engineer the view. So a lot easier to, to work with. Um, we went ahead and set up our RESTful web services using Wildfly on an application server on EC2 instance. Uh, with that, we, we were able to allow a lot of connections from everybody. You know, We had a lot of groups that used to access the database and pull queries. Well, now we're able to create WESP services that they were able to access which meant now when we change the database, we change the table or whatever, it doesn't break everybody um, because that database and REST service is going to change together. They're still just accessing that REST service, and it, it takes care of the changes. They don't even know that we've rolled out new code. Um, and we did go down from 15 on-prem servers to the four, and it's working great. Don't have any issues at all, and we can grow that as needed. So some of the problems we encountered, um, <laughs> going from Windows to Linux, the slashes, right? Backslash versus forward slash. Um, you know, really when you're coding, try to make sure you use the directory separator character or the path separators and make sure you do that. Otherwise, you're gonna have to go through all your code and you're gonna have to look at everything and see where, where you've gone wrong and what doesn't work. And same thing with going from Windows to Linux to the file case sensitivity. Same deal with the queries. You really need to look at that and make sure. All right, that's kind of it, kind of overview of, of everything. We uh, <clears throat> went through pretty quick. I don't know if, if you want to hang around or we can answer questions. Uh, please complete the survey and, and let us know how things went. And if you have any questions, come on up and, and we can answer them. Right. Thank you.